Our scripture today comes from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Brennan. As uh, last week, we talked about how we are, uh, we started a new sermon series called Thoughts and Prayers. Um, it comes from kind of the, the saying that seems often quite trite, um, but as I talked about last week, prayer in particular is one of the most powerful things that we can do. It's inviting God into our lives. And we live in a weird age. We live in a weird time. Uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor calls it a secular age. It's a time in which we have become disenchanted uh, with there being some sort of transcendent being that wants to have a relationship with us, something that is outside of our five senses that we would naturally uh, um, use to understand and experience and test uh, the existence of a God or forces uh, beyond ourselves. Uh, Charles Taylor calls this the imminent frame, that those things that are nearest to us, those things that, can, that we experience, live within this frame, our frame of mind, our frame of being, our frame of place. And all the while, we still long for transcendence. So we go out to experience these things, more life fully here in Colorado. That often means going into the mountains to uh, have these mountain peak experiences, the beauty of what is around us. But prayer in particular is one of those things, one of those practices, one of those tools that re-enchants our imaginations towards God that allows us to open ourselves up to the possibility as well as the reality of God existing and our imaginations being taken with Him and what He is doing in this world, in His creation, and in our lives. Prayer stirs our imaginations. In December of 2015, I began reading the Psalms as a concerted effort each day. 
I didn't realize the correlation at the time. I was really just trying to see if I could do it at all in 30 days, get through all 150 psalms. You, you can if you make a concerted effort for it. But we had just experienced our second miscarriage. The first had been in August of 2015, and as devastating as that was for us, the second miscarriage just made me angry. And I didn't really know how to handle it. I didn't have the words to say. I didn't have prayers to pray. I didn't have laments or curses even. But as I began to read the Psalms, the words, the thoughts, the emotions that my soul was struggling to express began to find a place. This is why as we are entering into this uh, sermon series, Thoughts and Prayers, we are entering into prayer through the Psalms, eventually getting to the Lord's Prayer itself. It's no wonder that the Psalms opened my heart. The Psalms have been uh, providing depth to uh, Christian prayers as well as Hebrew prayers uh, for millennia. It has been long recognized as both the Hebrew and Christian uh, songbook. Uh, This is scripture that was meant to be spoken and sung back to God, one of the few places that we have uh, scripture in this way. Martin Luther called the Psalms a little Bible. St. Ambrose called the Psalms a sort of gymnasium for the use of all souls, a sort of stadium of virtue where different sorts of exercise are set out before him from which he can choose the best suited to train him or herself to win his or her crown. They strengthen muscles that we didn't even know that we have. The Psalms, I think above anything, teach us that prayer is an invitation. It's an invitation to open our hearts to God. It's an invitation to say anything to Him. It's an invitation to curse, to praise, to invoke condemnation on others, to confess our sins, to acknowledge our need, or to be rescued, to be exposed and not rejected. Even Psalm uh, 94, is that what we read today? I have a very short-term memory. Uh, Psalm 94, yeah. Like, these aren't normal words that we would use in our evangelical culture today, niceties and things like that with God. But God, in His infinite wisdom, invites us to express these disconcerting thoughts and to lay bare our hearts before Him. It's a place where we don't have to pretend It's a place where we don't have to perform, where we can set our expectations aside and we can be real with God and we can be real with ourselves. But it's also a place where God longs to heal us, to redeem us, to enter into our own hearts and let God come in for this healing and restoration. They bring us into a world where we can have our imaginations restored for what God can do. And while Psalm 1, uh, we looked at last week, focuses our attention and imaginations on God, the purpose of Psalm 2 is to invite us into the largeness of who He is, to rehabilitate our intimidated imaginations so that we can see God at work in our lives and in His creation again. In May 2016, we were pregnant again. Stacy was about five months along. Life had become very hectic. We were preparing for Evelyn, a girl. We were very excited. Work was very busy. 
And then when I have looked back at my calendar over those months, it was extremely full. I'd become increasingly myopic, distracted with my life and with work, unable to unplug from the phone or the TV, and I'd become distracted from God. I needed my eyes opened again. I needed to get away, to unplug, to retreat, to find my refuge in Him. The Hebrews who wrote the Psalms and put the Psalter together were not so much interested in the human condition as they were in responding to the divine reality. They were deeply committed to a way of life that pivoted on the acts of God to be a part of what was going on with God. The Psalms were compiled and edited while they were in exile in Babylon, away from where they understood God to dwell in the temple, and so they deeply wanted to see God at work in their exile lives and to find refuge in Him. So they compiled this book to be able to remind them how to pray, to give them words when they didn't have any, and to be able to take refuge in Him. Psalm 2 is a bridge from our world of our human condition to God's world of divine reality. So I was watching a series of videos, and I found what I thought would be the perfect place to take refuge, the Quiet House. It's a retreat center uh, outside of San Antonio. It's connected to the Lady Lodge. They do really some really wonderful um, uh, retreats and things there. They had a video series that was set in a box canyon, which is kind of a canyon that's carved out and kind of encloses itself. And that unique structure allows it to be both narrowing and expansive in how life functions in this tiny little place. It was teeming with life in a way that it wouldn't, wouldn't have happened without that kind of a structure. It was a place that had to be discovered by restricting yourself to it. We often think that when we put restrictions on our lives, our freedoms are inhibited. That's why a lot of people don't enter into a relationship with Jesus or avoid relationships altogether. Taking refuge in God, being distracted by Him, focuses our lives both in a narrowing and incredibly freeing way. It narrows the focus of our lives, but it also releases us into the divine reality around us, which teems with life and is more expansive than we could ever imagine. So I booked my flight and I flew down to uh, San Antonio and got in my rental car and drove across this scraggly West Texas landscape. And the reality of what I was doing began to set in. I was excited, but I was also extremely anxious. I'd been warned by the website there was no cell coverage or Wi-Fi at the uh, quiet house. I was going to a place called The Quiet House, and I don't know if you can tell by just the volume I'm speaking at right now, I have a very hard time being quiet. Defiance began to well up within me. Why am I doing this? How am I going to Instagram my quiet retreat? How is my wife going to know if I'm alive and, and well, if I'm okay? Our natural response to God is defiance. We want to throw off his laws, his restrictions, and live our lives ourselves. Verses 1 through 3 is an amazing picture of this. Notice the kings and rulers and in their response to God 
They're murmuring. They're plotting. This is the word that we have in Psalm 1 is meditating. They want to loosen God's law from their lives. This is the opposite of Psalms 1 use of the word where we meditate on God's law day and night so that we can see his goodness and mercy in our lives. But here they are meditating on how to get God's law off of their life. We talked about how Torah, or the law, is God's story, and it comes from the word to throw. And as God loves to throw his story at us to penetrate our lives, they are throwing off God's story from their lives. Again, the image is of a lion grumbling and mumbling over its prey, delighting in what it is eating. And here they have a level of delight as they are plotting. They're arrogant. They know better. We know better how to live our lives. They're prideful. We can do it ourselves. The most common response that I give and I've heard when I ask the question, how are you? I think we know this is busy, right? It doesn't matter what our lives look like. Even in the, in the dog days of COVID, when there was nothing to do, we would say our lives are busy. I read an article uh, called The Disease of Being Busy by Omid Safi. He's the director of Islamic studies at Duke. And he tells a play date story, which I think is all too common, as we're trying to plan time to be able to spend with others and get our kids to be able to play with one another. He met a, a new neighbor at a park, and he said, well, let's, let's set up a play date so our kids can play together. And it was like three months before this family had a free afternoon where they could get their kids together at that age. He says, this disease of being busy, he said, let's call it what it is, a, the dis-ease of being better, uh, busy we're, when we are never at ease, is spiritually destructive to our health and our well-being. It saps our ability to be fully present with those we love the most in our families and keeps us from forming the kind of community that we all so desperately crave. When Muslims ask, how are you in, Arama in Arabic, they ask, how is your heart? How is your heart? By being busy, we have the ability to hide behind our schedules from other people, but also from ourselves and from God to throw off his rule in our lives. But prayer is the primary way in which we murmur God's story back into our heart. Prayer exposes our hearts to God, often things that we don't know that were there. Are you exposing your heart to God? He is the safest place to expose your heart. There may be work that needs to be done. He may desire to rearrange some things, but he does it in love. He does it in mercy and in kindness. Psalm 2 invites us into this kind of exposure. Speaking to a friend uh, recently, and she talked about how she's as she's grown older, God has beginning to go deep into her heart. No longer was she dealing with surface-level sins and behaviors and, and rebellions, but God wanted to dig deep at the root of what is going on in her life. She said, our busyness often allows us to numb ourselves to his work in our lives when he is calling us to a deeper level of trust, a deeper level of faith, and it takes faith to not busy ourselves, to not distract us 
from what God is doing and longs to do in our lives. So I took a speaker with me to listen to music while I was there. I almost always have music on. When you guys came over last night, I had music on. I love music. Um, I, uh, Scott Winnig, professor at Denver Seminary, we were having lunch uh, this last past week, and he was like, so where are you listening to now? And I was like, music. Like, I think he wanted audiobooks, But um, I listen to music primarily. A friend had challenged me, though, to not listen to music and to embrace the quiet. He was a good friend, but he didn't know me that well uh, in that area. During the first 24 hours... I tried to take up his challenge, and I was absolutely miserable. I couldn't doubt. I continued to doubt my decision uh, for this kind of retreat. I would walk past my phone and just tap it to see maybe a notification had come in. Maybe AT and T had built a new tower in the you know 12 hours I'd been there, and I suddenly had access to the world again. But during the second evening, while I was cooking dinner, I decided I couldn't stand it any longer. I turned music on. And that's when God began to invade my time there. It's what he does here in the psalm in verses 4 through 9. God answers the murmuring, the plotting that's going on with an awful, wonderful, and terrifying answer. He laughs, and then he invades. Laughter restores our perspective. There is a thing as taking the world's arrogance too seriously, Madeline Lingle calls laughter a weapon against the dark. The average four-year-old laughs 300 times a day. The average 40-year-old, four times. We need to laugh. Laughter reminds us to take ourselves seriously enough to take ourselves lightly. The last night that I was in Holland, Michigan, um, we uh, last week, um, there's a picture that uh, one of the guys took of me and uh, of one of the other um, people in the cohort, and my face is red with laughter. He just caught the, the moment so well. We were enjoying our time. We had done the work that we needed to do, and we were enjoying ourselves, laughing, telling absolutely ridiculous stories. And then God invades. He comes to us. He says he sets his king on an earthly throne. In verse 2, this king is called the anointed one. This is the Hebrew word for Messiah. The psalm is often considered to be a coronation hymn. It's a liturgy that was recited at the installation of new kings in Israel, but it was also considered a messianic psalm because it points well beyond the throne of Saul, David, and Solomon. To, um, and it's not a sovereignty that's imposed upon humanity, but an invasion of humanity. This psalm is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, especially as it refers to Jesus. Verse 7 is quoted three times in the New Testament at Jesus' baptism, his transfiguration, and in Acts as it refers as when they refer to his resurrection. The author of Hebrews, that we just, the book that we just went through, uses it to affirm Jesus' place above the angels and the priests. See, God doesn't just appoint a mere human to a throne, 
but he himself comes into history. He takes on human flesh. He comes to us where we are in our lives, where we go to school, where we go to work, where we go to war, where we go to vacation, and he comes as a conquering king. In the person of Jesus Christ, he invades our story. Transcendence invades the imminent. Transcendence plus imminence equals incarnation. I needed divine invasion in my life to drag me away from my own busyness and back to God. I needed someone else other than myself, other than my work, other than the pressures that were going on around me to be king of my life. Have you noticed how we never really get away from the, the king myth in our, uh, in, our, in our culture? We always continually tell kingship stories. King Arthur and Camelot, Robin Hood protects the innocent until King Richard returns Lord of the Rings, awaits the rightful king from the north. Game of Thrones was our modern obsession for a while, right? The king, the right ruler to come and sit on the thrones, and the reason it will not uh, uh, hold up against time is because they ruin the story. The rightful king, the one we've longed for, the one who's supposed to sit on the throne, doesn't at the end. I'm sorry, it's been out a while. I don't mean to ruin it for you, but the one who they've named to be the rightful heir does not sit on the throne at the end. Disney knows this. They get it right every time. Simba returns to Pride Rock. What? Yes! Sorry, it's been out longer. So... <laughs> Okay, you watch this. Okay, good. Outside of our myths in our everyday lives, we look at billionaires, we look at athletes and celebrities and other demagogues to be our kings. They inform our decisions, they write our songs, they govern our lives, they dominate our newsfeed. We give our time and our money and our attention to them, sometimes even as they plot against the one true king, invoking his name. I think that's the real understanding of the uh, third commandment of using God's name in vain, but we deeply long for kings in our lives. Prayer is how we approach the heavenly king. Prayers are requests before God, someone who both has personal rule in our lives as well as cosmic rule over the, the vastness of creation. We are asking God to invade our lives, to take a real personal interest in the minutiae of them, in prayer, we see that the person of Jesus is not only a king who is universal, but one who is deeply personal as well. He does not just sovereignly rule over the world, but he intimately comes into our lives. We make requests of God. The Lord's Prayer that we will uh, begin looking at in a, a couple more weeks uh, has the address of Heavenly Father, and then it makes seven petitions. Give us this day is the first human-centered petition. And it reminds us that there's nothing too small for us to bring to the rightful king. And in making our request, we acknowledge Jesus' both cosmic reign and ask for that to come into our personal lives as well. My whole experience at the retreat transformed when I turned the music on. My heart moved from a task list of things that I wanted to get done to communion with God, who I was experiencing, who I was spending time with. I began to wander in the landscape. I went on hikes. I went over to the Box Canyon. I became curious about this 
place, and I was curious about God again. I began to see and experience myself and God in holy, H-O-L-Y, new ways. My defiant heart became distracted heart towards God and transformed itself into adoration. God often transforms our defiance into adoration, looking at verses 10 through 12. There are five holy distractions in these verses. Be wise, be warned, serve, rejoice, and kiss. The first two distract our minds. The third distracts our hands. And the last two distract our affections. In other words, our whole being can be distracted with the holy away from the anxious anxious things of this world. This is not ignoring our lives, our problems, our joys, uh, but it's taking them to God and expecting Him to work and act in them, among them. Have you ever noticed how adoration rarely involves saying anything? If you stand in front of the Grand Canyon or at the foot of a mountain, you get lost in a painting or you take in a concert, hopefully your mouth is only a gape and there is no words coming out of it. All of these are adoration and none of them require words. While I was cooking dinner, my last night at the quiet house, I was going around to make sure I didn't forget anything. It's been a problem in the past. And so I climbed up into the loft, and as I was finding nothing there, and my food was taking way longer to cook than what it should have, I just laid on my back and stared out the window. And my thoughts wandered, and I began to remember. I began to remember how God's work of salvation uh, in my life came about, how my call to ministry and my affections were turned towards him. I remember how God walked with me through the dark times of addiction, of failures, of difficulties. And I began to see God's constant hand of redemption through my life. I hugely needed this because as I remembered this, what I didn't know was I was about to enter into a year of really challenging life not having my phone next to me, not being distracted by the cares of this world, gave my mind the space it needed to be expanded towards God. Adoration takes time. It goes against the grain of this world, right? We get up and we go. We are moving immediately. Prayer is stark contrast to the busyness of our lives. Prayer often feels like we are wasting time. We should be doing something. But this is what uh, scripture calls Sabbath. Sabbath quite um, simply means to quit, to stop, to take a break, to be still. Eugene Peterson says, Sabbath is that uncluttered time and space in which we can distance ourselves from our own activities enough to see what God is doing. In Sabbath keeping, we separate ourselves from the to-do lists that cling to us the routines that we cling to for our identity, and that we offer them to God. We quiet the internal noise so that we can hear the still, small voice of God. And in Sabbath keeping, we cultivate play. So pray, and then we play. Pray, praying is bringing our concerns to God, but playing is leaving them there. We go and occupy ourselves with what the world would call things that are inconsequential, things that are frivolous, things that will um, 
uh, not have a lasting infect, effect, but these are hobbies or uh, playfulness that God gives us so that we know that he both rules over the world and cares deeply about our lives as well. It's so easy to say. It's so hard to do. Not long after my return from the retreat, the quietude was lost. I'm struggling still to regain that. I've seen it over them. You know, that was almost 10 years ago now, but it's come in waves where I have that quietude, that um, playfulness. But God stays there. Psalm 2 reminds us that He is always inviting us back to Him to find our refuge in Him, to have our eyes opened and reawakened to God's continual work in our lives, to be holy, H-O-L-Y, distracted. You know, refuges don't have to be three-day retreats. Um, Because of Jesus, we can find ourselves in Him in the midst of our busy lives. We can take pauses. We can create new habits. Uh, We can find silence and stillness in a way that we are able to see that the power that raised Christ from the dead is that same power that resides in your heart if you kiss the Son. It's Jesus who is able to take all of our kisses, not just in love, but in betrayal as well. The one who faces the rulers and kings of this world and is bound to their laws, who takes on the rod of iron as nails in his hands and feet on the cross, who leaves the rest of heaven, the Sabbath of heaven, and enters the chaos of the world. The one who is wholly distracted with God's adoration of you, even while you may remain distracted in your own anxieties. Psalm 1 and 2 are often thought of as being one psalm originally. You may remember that Psalm 1 begins, Blessed are all Um, Blessed is the one, blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And here we see at the end, the psalmist writes, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Not only do we find our delight in God's story, but we find our refuge from the disenchanted world in his story as well. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you don't wait for us, that you are not distracted from the things uh, of this world, but that you are wholly concentrated on us, that you stand here welcoming us, waiting for us, longing for us to return, and you send your Son to us in order to be, um, so that we may know of both your transcendence as well as your eminence in the incarnation of Jesus. Help us have our imagination stirred to you, for you, for your peace and mercy to come in our lives so that we can see uh, the, the story that you are writing on our hearts. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.